It's time to turn our attention now to Acts 17, 24 through 31, which is the locus classicus of the Pauline apologetic, and to consider the one grand scheme of covenantal revelation that he presents in that address and assess the way it bears on apologetical method. This is designed to enrich and supply biblical, sustained biblical evidence for Van Til's method of reasoning by presupposition. The basic argument of this lecture is as follows. Paul's Areopagus address assumes the form of a covenant lawsuit against all of Adam's fallen posterity, and it integrates into one grand scheme the history of natural revelation and the history of special revelation and construes the resurrection of Jesus Christ as proof of final judgment. His address proceeds in terms of a seamless integration of natural and special revelation with the resurrection of Jesus Christ as judge and savior at its climactic center. What all men know they deserve by virtue of general revelation, Romans 1, 18 through 20 and 32, has been confirmed in special revelation by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead as Savior and Judge, Acts 17, 31. Natural revelation finds instant incorporation into the purpose of special revelation and the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Therefore, Paul does not appeal to reason unaided by revelation in order to prove the natural truths of theism, only then to move on to seek to appeal to the supernatural truths of revelation that transcend such natural reason. Rather, in contrast to that blockhouse method, Paul presents his theism as well as his Christianity as a revelational unit, an integrated theological unity set within the framework of a covenant lawsuit. The instant integration of natural revelation into the purpose of special revelation precludes an appeal to reason unaided by revelation, undermines a traditional Roman Catholic blockhouse method, and sets the sum total of the history of special revelation over against the idolatry of the Athenian philosophers. Now, some portions of this lecture will be a compressed summary of an article that I wrote for a book entitled Revelation and Reason, and the title of that article was resurrection proof and presuppositionalism. However, I've supplemented and reworked portions of it for the purpose of this module and to fit what we've examined from the primary sources of Van Til on the one side and Thomas Aquinas and his Roman Catholic interpreters on the other side. The argument will proceed as it does in the essay in terms of five summary propositions that have been modified at points. Proposition number one, first, as an orienting observation, Paul the apologist for the resurrection of Christ is Paul the theologian of the history of special revelation. 
It becomes clear in Acts 17, 24 through 31, that Paul does not argue with one set of presuppositions as an apologist and another set of presuppositions as a theologian. Ben Witherington, although no Vantillian, observes that Paul's argument from 24 to 31 is, quote, thoroughly biblical from the start, so that the conclusion regarding Jesus' resurrection as proof of final judgment follows naturally from the argument. Paul starts with the history of special revelation in the Old Testament scriptures, and Paul concludes with the history of special revelation that reaches its climax in the death and in the resurrection of Jesus Christ as Savior and Judge. Moreover, Paul does not appeal to unaided natural reason as an apologist, only then to appeal to supernatural revelation as a theologian. He does not seek to establish a rational theism, a theism rooted in natural reason unaided by revelation, only then to turn to the truth of Christianity on the basis of revelation. To relate this to a previous lecture, God is not last in terms of a natural theological method and then first in terms of a sacred theological method. Paul, as a theologian of the history of special revelation, begins with that history of special revelation as an apologist for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. No abstract, formal, philosophical reasoning operating independently from natural and special revelation appears at any point in Paul's address on Mars Hill. Paul argues as a covenant theologian, as he prosecutes a covenant lawsuit against the Athenian idolaters who suppress the truth of natural revelation and who spurn the proclamation of special revelation. Now we must begin then by recognizing there is compelling evidence to suggest that Paul, as the apostle to the Gentiles, presents a covenant lawsuit against the Athenian idolaters. Regarding that lawsuit pattern, M.G. Klein, in his seminal work on the topic, observes the following features in the covenant lawsuit. This is from Bioth Consigned, page 54. He says this, when a vassal subject failed to satisfy the obligations of a sworn treaty, the suzerain king instituted a covenant lawsuit against him. The legal process was conducted by messengers, in the first of its two distinct phases, messengers delivered one or more warnings. The vassal was reminded of the suzerain's benefits and of the treaty stipulations. Explanation of his offenses was demanded, and he was admonished to mend his ways. He was also confronted anew with the curses of the covenant, now in the form of an ultimatum and warned of the vanity of all hope of escape through recourse to any alien quarter. If the messenger of the great king was rejected, imprisoned, and especially if he was killed, the legal process moved into its next phase. This was a declaration of war as an execution of the sacred sanctions of the treaty, and so 
a visitation of the oath deities against the offender, a trial by ordeal. Paul's address on Mars Hill in Acts 17, 24 through 31 bears the impress of this covenant lawsuit, follows its formal structure. Paul begins his address to the Athenian idolaters with the special revelation of the self-contained triune God of the Old Testament scriptures. References to the book of Isaiah serve as virtual bookends to his address, 24 and 25 on the one side, 29 on the other side. In Acts 17, 23, Paul proclaims the living and true God who has revealed himself over against the so-called unknown God of Athenian idolatry. As the apostle to the Gentiles, note the theological substance of his proclamation in verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Paul alludes here to Isaiah 42, 5, quote, Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. You can also see 1 Kings 8.27, Isaiah 66.1, and Acts 7.48 for similar language. Paul begins, not with reason unaided by revelation, but with the proclamation of the revelation of the immutable creator as revealed in the scriptures of the Old Testament. In Acts 17.29, Near the conclusion of the address, he says, quote, We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, which alludes to Isaiah's proscription against idolatry in Isaiah 40, 18 through 20. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness will you compare him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver chains. Rather than appealing to the reason or imagination of man unaided by revelation, Paul condemns seeking to know God in that way. He condemns seeking to know God or seeking to worship God by an appeal to the rational imagination of man unaided by revelation, which leads only to idolatry after the fall. The God that Paul calls the Athenians to worship is a God of revelation, natural and special, and must not be conceived by fallen reason and darkened imagination of man unaided by revelation. Paul therefore calls all men everywhere to repent of such idolatry. He begins with the metaphysical and epistemological principles derived from revelation, not with natural reason alone unaided by revelation. Now, growing out of these allusions to Isaiah, we can begin to discern the formal presence of a covenant lawsuit in Paul's address as well as the material 
features that you find. Keeping in mind Klein's outline of the features present in the covenant lawsuit, notice the following. First, Paul identifies the Athenian idolaters as creaturely vassals of the creator king, identifying the king by his revealed name, verses 24 and 25. The God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth does not dwell in temples made by the hands of men. Paul proclaims (coughs) the revelation of the immutable creator whose throne is in heaven, the highest heaven, created in the absolute beginning. Paul alludes, if we could use language borrowed from Meredith Klein, to the indoxate glory of the triune God whose presence fills the heaven temple that he created in the absolute beginning, filled with the glory of his triune majesty and populated with an angelic host. Second, Paul enumerates the benefits enjoyed by the vassals of the king whose glory dwells in no earthly temple made by hands. In verse 26, Paul proclaims, uh, 25, Paul proclaims that this living and true God, the God whose indoxate glory fills the heaven temple and not temples made with hands, this God remains independent and assay in his sovereignly willed relation to creation. Paul says, quote, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. The living and true God does not change in and is not determined by his relation to creatures. Rather, as independent, he sustains all that he has made, and he does so without in any way being changed by or determined by the creature to whom he relates. So, while Paul does not begin with natural reason unaided by revelation, neither does he begin with a self-limited and mutable deity. He begins with the self-contained creator, the creator of all things in heaven and on earth, who remains independent, immutable, and impassable in his sovereignly willed relation to creation. Third, Paul alludes to the creation of Adam from whom all descend by ordinary generation, thereby invoking the doctrines of special creational image endowment and the ineradicable natural revelation of God that while suppressed and distorted by sinful men, cannot be eradicated, as some Athenian poets testify. He says in 26 through 28, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your poets have said, for we indeed are his offspring. Paul presents in a terse and compressed manner the doctrine of special creation, the inescapable revelation of God in the book of conscience, and enlists Athenian poets 
as those who possess yet suppress that internal and ineradicable natural revelation of God. Fourth, in 29 through 31, Paul brings the formal indictment of the covenant lawsuit. Verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given proof to all by raising him from the dead. The lawsuit comes, as Klein notes, in two historical phases, two consecutive ages. The first phase of the process appears in the call to repent in 30b. The second phase of the process will occur on the appointed day of judgment at the end of the age when God judges the world in righteousness by the man appointed as raised, Jesus Christ, the second man and the last Adam. The two phases of the eschatological covenant lawsuit correspond to the two appearings of Christ, the first and second coming. Paul announces an eschatological covenant lawsuit adjusted in terms of the already and not yet of the eschatology that is centered in the person, work, and kingdom of Jesus Christ. Christ's resurrection and ascension provide the basis for the first phase of announced judgment, which culminates in the commandment to repent in verse 30. Christ's second coming marks the second and final stage of the threatened judgment, which reaches its climax on the day appointed. Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, charges the Athenians with idolatry and announces an impending and inaugurated covenant lawsuit in terms that derive from God's self-revelation in nature and scripture and are shaped by the eschatology of Jesus' resurrection. Failure to repent, verse 30, constitutes a rebellious attitude toward the lawgiver and judge, thereby ensuring final judgment. The only hope is to repent of idolatry and worship God according to his revealed will that has been validated in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Therefore, when Paul appeals to the resurrection of Jesus Christ as proof of final judgment, he has in mind covenantal categories of revelation that confer on Christ's resurrection its unique and distinctive meaning. Paul announces an eschatological judgment in covenantal categories and presents the resurrection as certain historical proof of final judgment. That leads us to a second point now. As we we note here, there's one grand scheme of revelation And the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ stands as its center. So Paul, now, as we narrow in and think about verse 31, and this turns us toward method, Paul construes the resurrection of Jesus as piston proof, 
some translations give it assurance, but it's objective covenant historical confirmation of the judgment that comes. It's proof. Proof of judgment by the resurrection of Christ. And what I want you to appreciate is that this conception of proof rests on revealed categories as an eschatological event and as a covenantal event. First, the resurrection of Christ as a covenantal event, as an epoch-changing event. As, a, as, a, as an eschatological event, Paul presents Jesus' resurrection as an epoch-changing occurrence that guarantees the certainty of a future universal and final act of God's judgment against sin. There is a definite eschatology to this conception of proof. Paul says uh, in verse 30 that although God overlooked the times of ignorance, he now commands all men everywhere to repent. The specific call to repentance is grounded in a decisive intervention of God in redemptive history. An intervention which, contrary to the past now, Tanun, heightens the responsibility of the hearers. Paul grounds the gospel imperative to repent in the redemptive historical indicative of God's decisive activity in history, the resurrection of Christ as judge. The exaltation of Christ in history marks a change in redemptive historical era so that after the resurrection of Christ, covenant history has in principle reached its climactic phase. It's already of eschatological inauguration. In light of these opening observations, then, we can understand the inference Paul makes in verse 30. Although God overlooks such times of ignorance, he now commands all men everywhere to repent. Ritterboss notes this, quote, in the resurrection, the time of salvation promised in Christ, the new creation, dawns in an overwhelming manner from, uh, as a decisive transition from the old to the new world. You see, when Paul presents the resurrection of Christ, as proof of final judgment, he presents an event that ushers in the translation out of the old and into the new, understood as a virtual new creation, as, a, as a, an actual new creation in Jesus Christ as raised from the dead. And that means that the former epochs of overlooking sin, and what we mean by that, by not bringing climactic judgment against sin. That's given way to a new eon where the judgment has been confirmed as certain and in the future inescapable. This is clear in that Paul characterizes the former epochs as times of ignorance that stand in sharp contrast with now. 
Paul doesn't state in verse 30 that only the Stoic and Epicurean philosophers were ignorant, though 29 and uh, 23 prove they were, in fact, ignorant in a significant sense. Paul predicates ignorance of entire historical epochs prior to this new era inaugurated in the resurrection. Times of ignorance are a previous and indeterminate period of time that give way to a new age where judgment against sin has been confirmed once and for all. And so the resurrection guarantees a future judgment against sin. Secondly, the resurrection is a covenantal event. So we we say the resurrection uh, of Jesus Christ is an eschatological event. It renders certain future judgment. It's also a covenantal event in that it brings into view a solidaric bond. In this connection, I want to address very briefly the solidaric implications of the resurrection in the context of Pentecost. The covenantal character of Christ's resurrection appears most clearly in the fact that it has implications, according to Paul, for all men everywhere, whether covenant breakers or covenant keepers. It is precisely that universal implication that helps us understand the solidaric character of Christ's resurrection. One man rises, and as raised, he is either judge or savior, and none are excluded. And those are the only two categories that accrue by virtue of Jesus' resurrection. Reformed theology has traditionally explained solidarity with the first Adam in covenantal terms, parallel to the explanation of the church's solidarity with the second Adam in covenantal terms. From Paul's redemptive historical perspective, it is precisely Christ's status and function as the second Adam that ensures his resurrection has implications for all men everywhere. As the second Adam, he stands in a solidaric relation to his church as Savior, and those who are not in him are under judgment. Richard B. Gaffin Jr. makes this point well in Perspectives on Pentecost when he describes Jesus' messianic baptism of death on the cross in terms of promise and fulfillment. Listen to what he says. From the perspective of promise... Luke 3, 16b and 17, symbolized by John's water baptism, Christ's messianic baptism of death on the cross involves eschatological judgment, which is of a piece with God's great discriminating activity of cleansing the world threshing floor, or to vary the metaphor slightly, harvesting the world field at the end of history. In terms of fulfillment, Gaffin says, quote, Pentecost is component with the fiery baptism of final judgment set by the New Testament to be executed at his return. And then he lists Matthew 16, 27, Acts 10, 42, 17, 31, 1 Thessalonians 1, 7, and 2 Timothy 4, 1. Gaffin picks up in 17, 31, 
that whether viewed from the standpoint of promise or fulfillment, Christ's baptism of death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead signals that the same judgment ordeal awaits the world at the end of this age. Therefore, Gaffin's formulation helps us grasp how the baptism ordeal that Christ endured in his death is the same ordeal that awaits the world threshing floor at the end of history, and Jesus' resurrection as judge is proof of final judgment. This helps us understand, then, why Paul will speak of the resurrection as proof of final judgment. He views it under the lens of the history of special revelation that interprets the resurrection as an eschatological event and as a covenantal event, constituting Jesus as the judge and Savior. Now, the third proposition, to turn this now to the question here more specifically of Paul's conception of, uh, of proof um, and, and the bearing of the covenantal and the eschatological features on that proof, I want you to note this. Paul refuses to separate the denotation or fact of the resurrection from the connotation or meaning of the resurrection because the fact and the meaning of the resurrection are qualified by revelation. Consider the following somewhat more philosophical implication, but it grows right out of the theology. Paul will not present the fact of the resurrection apart from the covenant historical meaning of the resurrection. The Christ whom Paul proclaims is the Christ of covenant history, and his resurrection is not presented in isolation from that history. It's not presented as a brute fact to natural reason unaided by revelation at any point in his address. The deed revelation of the resurrection is never artificially isolated from the word revelation of apostolic proclamation committed to Scripture. Accordingly, any apologetical procedure that artificially separates at any point the fact of the resurrection from the meaning of the resurrection is, from a biblical standpoint, defective. This implies that Paul's not interested in offering the resurrection as an isolated factual occurrence. Van Til notes the interrelationship between covenantal revelation and the fact of the resurrection when he says this. It takes the fact of the resurrection to see its proper framework, and it takes the framework to see the fact of the resurrection. That's from his underappreciated uh, shorter work, Paul at Athens. Paul understands the resurrection of Jesus Christ in terms of the history of special revelation. And at no point does he excise the resurrection from that history of special revelation. He doesn't treat it as a fact that exists independent of God's eternal decree or God's 
revelation in time. Van Til notes that when it comes to understanding the significance of the resurrection as an event in redemptive history, he says, quote, the setting is all important since it is that which gives meaning to the fact of the resurrection. History of special revelation forges the presupposed authoritative context, the atmospheric environment in which Paul presents the fact and the meaning of the resurrection together as proof of final judgment. Extending this insight, I want you to note this fourth. Paul's notion of proof cannot be reduced to an ordinary, standard, philosophical notion of proof, namely that which is based on mere rational reflection, mere empirical observation, or bare pragmatic utility, since it rests on revealed categories derived from the history of special revelation. In Paul's presentation, the resurrection, it, the fact of the resurrection, proves final judgment. Ventil summarizes this point well when he says this. He, Paul, was not interested in having them endorse the resurrection as an isolated event. He was rather concerned that they accept it as the climax of the work of redemption from sin by Jesus truly God and truly man. In short, men should not existentially accept the resurrection unless in doing so they received it as part of the entire biblical redemptive framework. That one is from Who Do You Say I Am? Consequently, Van Til observes that Paul called those on Mars Hill to accept a, quote, peculiar thought framework that, quote, required a new, listen, radically different view of history from its beginning to its end. Not only is Paul presenting a system of theology, he's presenting a unique philosophy of history, one grand scheme of covenantal revelation, where natural revelation is instantly incorporated into the history of special revelation of which Jesus Christ is the redemptive center and redemptive telos. So Paul presented to the Athenians the resurrection of Christ, never artificially segregating the fact of the resurrection from the meaning of resurrection. In fact, Van Til goes on to say, Paul proclaimed the fact of the resurrection, the fact of creation, the fact of coming judgment of all men by Christ as judge, as together constituting a philosophy of history which at every point challenged the philosophy of history of the natural man in general and of the Greeks in particular. It's there, by the way, that's from the Great Debate Today, page 169. It's there that I think you discern the influence of Voss's biblical theology on Van Til. What what we can say here is that this circle here represents a unique revelational philosophy 
of history. And if you think about it, in light of 1731 through uh, Acts 17, 24 through 31, it moves from creation, it moves from the doctrine of God to the doctrine of creation to the inescapability of natural revelation and the way it's instantly incorporated into the whole history of special revelation that climaxes in Jesus Christ. So in addition to what we've said about the systematic theological contrast with unbelief when we reason by presupposition, complementing that, we have an entirely unique revelational philosophy of history that Van Til is urging. And this is really where I think the influence of Voss appears quite fully. Yeah, since I, since I got that. He presents a, not, it's here that we see that Van Til presents not only a systematic contrast across every doctrinal locus with unbelief, but largely on the basis of the influence of Voss, presents a unique revelational philosophy of history that stands in antithetical contrast, not only to the Greek philosophers, but to the natural man. So this covenant historical conception of proof is an illustration of a comprehensive philosophy of history. And so Van Til says, quote, In his resurrection from the dead, through the power of the Creator, there stood before men the clearest evidence that could be given that they who would still continue to serve and worship the creature would at last be condemned by the Creator, then become their judge. Acts 17.31 In Van Til's assessment, the resurrection of Christ is the clearest conceivable evidence of universal and final judgment against sin. But it is such in terms of the entire biblical redemptive framework. It is such in terms of a philosophy of history rooted in revelation, natural and special. Only in terms of such revelation does the fact of the resurrection bear such a meaning. There is no natural reason unaided by revelation that Paul entertains or to which Paul appeals here. Now, what makes this so relevant and interesting in terms of apologetical encounter emerges in the fact that such an interpretation of the resurrection is by no means the only option for understanding its significance. Paul's presentation stands directly over against other philosophies of history. For instance, the Epicurean philosophers present on Mars Hill, Acts 17, 18, would explain the resurrection of Christ as an adjustment in the falling of Adam's. What would account for an event as unusual as the resurrection of a dead person, according to Epicurean thought, would be a swerve in the falling of Adam, something highly irregular. 
In other words, the philosophical explanation for understanding the resurrection in Epicurean categories would be a swerve in the falling of Adam's. From that perspective, the resurrection would be a curious, highly unusual, random episode in history. Paul sets a biblical, revelational, covenant historical philosophy of history directly over against the Epicurean and Stoic philosophies of history. It is a full-orbed, transcendental, presuppositional challenge of unbelief at the core. It's just impossible to see it any other way. The antithesis is so clear. The resurrection does not belong Ripley's Believe It or Not, it belongs at the center of a history of special revelation and should never be presented apart from it. Speaking to Greeks. That's so critical. This helps us understand the fifth and final point. Paul's argument requires us to orient apologetics in terms of an integrated theology of general and special revelation that presents the resurrected Christ as its climax. You see, one grand scheme of covenantal revelation is the context for Paul's address. As we've seen from previous propositions, Paul the apologist for the resurrection is Paul the theologian of covenant history. He simply nowhere appeals to natural truths of reason unaided by revelation. He doesn't suspend the presentation of natural revelation as the authoritative context for understanding the resurrection. His presentation of the resurrection as proof of judgment realized in future depends at every point on an integrated theology of natural and special revelation. A covenant lawsuit rooted in one grand scheme of natural and special revelation with Christ as its center lies at the heart of Paul's apologetic. This means at least that we need to be willing to subject the discipline of apologetics to insights derived from the biblical theology of the inscripturated text. We will do well to heed heed Paul's argument on Mars Hill and appropriate his programmatic insights into the core of our apologetic, and at least these implications need to be taken into consideration first. Biblical theology in the tradition of Gerhardus Voss helps us see that it is biblically inappropriate to appeal to the historical fact of the resurrection in isolation from its covenant historical meaning. Paul's presentation of the fact and the meaning of the resurrection precludes an approach that you find in traditional Roman Catholic blockhouse methods. Second, biblical theology helps us recognize that we argue both in terms of a revealed system of truth, Van Til's typical emphasis, as well as an entire history of special revelation, Voss's typical emphasis. 
The system of biblical truth has a distinctive philosophy of history. And biblical theology helps us discern that philosophy of history, thereby enriching our conception of the system of truth. Third, biblical theology calls attention to Paul's argument in Acts 17 in such a way that as Protestants, Reformed theologians, we cannot ignore. So often Protestants, and even Reformed, can be tempted to follow the blockhouse method of traditional Roman Catholic theology, where apologetics is construed as a branch of natural theology that appeals to the truths of natural reason, unaided by revelation, en route to the supernatural truths of revelation. You can see the material in Aquinas and Feinberg from the previous lecture for more. But Paul's covenant lawsuit, his organic integration of natural and special revelation, his presentation of the resurrection of Christ as the proof of final judgment and only hope of salvation cuts entirely against a blockhouse approach and instead enshrines a method of reasoning by presupposition. To put it in the language of Antil, Paul declares the metaphysical and epistemological principles that underlie and control his method. In Acts 17, 24 through 31, Paul proclaimed a total system of covenant theology, an integrated presentation of natural and special revelation in the form of a covenant lawsuit centered on Christ to the Athenians on Mars Hill. The resurrection as proof of judgment indicates that Jesus' resurrection is the capstone of the history of natural and special revelation as the history of the former serves the history of the latter. Now in our next lecture, we'll probe more deeply in the words of Van Til, the metaphysical and epistemological principles of revelation that enable Paul's argument in Acts 17, 24 through 31. This will lead us to a sustained examination of how the revealed mystery of Christ, Colossians 1, 16 and Colossians 2, 2 and 3, stands over against all philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental principles of this world, and not according to Christ, Colossians 2.8. The revelation of the mystery, which is Christ, offers a comprehensive view of the creator-creature relation and grounds in revelation the antithesis between what God has made known in Christ and in the inscripturated word of the Old and New Testaments on the one hand, and every form of unbelieving philosophy on the other hand, so that Christ might be preeminent in all things. Colossians 1.18